Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. of beauty and an appreciation for art in all its forms has been an important aspect of our home education. As you know, the last few episodes, we've talked a lot about, about beauty and art. Years ago, I discovered Catholic heritage curricula and was first introduced to their art appreciation resources for young kids. They have an art masterpieces series. A desire for a deeper understanding of art led us to CHC's program Ever Ancient Ever New. This program is in two parts. Part one of Ever Ancient Ever New guides us from ancient art forms to the art of the Renaissance. Part two leads us from the art of the high Renaissance through to the modern era. What really drew us to this program was the art appreciation aspect of it and the history aspect of it with a distinctly Catholic perspective. But the program also presents art theory and opportunity for practice with a companion art pad that comes along with it. They give the children projects that they can work on to practice some of the art skills inherent in the program. CHC materials are always steeped in beauty and this program is visually delightful. For us, it helped us cultivate a sensitivity for beauty and gave us a solid foundation in the eras of art and the character that define them. The lives of artists and cultural influences that affected art are explored in the context of each chapter. One of the really awesome parts of Ever Ancient Ever New is that it can be used independently from children about, they recommend about grade five and up, or it can be read together as a family. As something we've really valued in our family, this program makes art appreciation something that parents can share with their children without being overwhelmed by the idea of introducing art. Beautiful, it's simple, it's engaging. I will put a link to the program in the show notes. Have a look. And you can also enjoy all of CHC's art programs that they offer for younger kids as well. I am grateful for CHC's support of this podcast. Good afternoon to all my listeners and good afternoon to my guest, John Paul. Welcome back, John Paul. Thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be back. John Paul Mina, who's one of the professors at Seed of Wisdom College in uh, in Ontario, a college that that most of my children have gone to. They're just uh, all but the youngest. And I was hoping to talk with you today, John Paul, about uh, the transcendentals, and we'll get into what that what that is and what that means in in a couple of minutes. But I was hoping that maybe you could first tell my listeners sort of a little bit about yourself and what you're what kind of what you're currently up to. Well, I teach at Lady Cedar Wisdom College in Barry's Bay. I've been, I helped us, as you know from last time, I helped to start the college, you know, 22 years ago, 1999, 2000. And uh, so I'm still teaching. I do my, the foundational theology course at the college and some upper year theology and a course in faith and science. And I also write uh, on and edit Catholic Insight online magazine that uh, tries to get truth out there the wider world and uh, in a different forum. And then I do my other hobbies on the side, music and outdoor adventures. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, you haul a lot of students along with you on those adventures. I, sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's real, <laughs> you know, sometimes they come along, sometimes they don't. And, uh, and I also love uh, liturgy, you know, bringing music into liturgy. Yeah. Part of the theme 
hopefully of today's discussion, which is... You know, I hope so. Yeah, I was hoping you would bring that into it. So I wanted to, first of all, say, you know, it's kind of a, a big word and maybe for many of us sort of an unfamiliar word, transcendentals. Mm -hmm. So so what does it mean? What is the What are the transcendentals in, in a Catholic perspective? Because that term is used uh, in philosophy as well, right? They do. So the church has adopted them from the philosophical tradition, like the going back to Thomas Aquinas and even earlier back to uh, the Greeks, Aristotle and others. And so transcendentals are those categories that transcend the, the accident. So Aristotle divides the world up into being itself, the things that are, and then what things have, their accidents, like what characterizes those things. And so being is the, is, is the, the highest category, if you will. And then being can be characterized by quantity, quality, relation, position, color, all those sorts of things. And the transcendentals are those things that are at the same level as being. They're being seen in another way, from a different perspective. Right. So you count them as truth, goodness, unity, and, and sometimes beauty. Okay. That they're not an accident of being. They are being itself seen from a perspective that we can go into a little bit. Okay. So the root of the word then would be transcend. So that that which is above. Yes. To, to, okay. to be above or to, to go above or to, yes, indeed. So I don't think it's a word we have to be sort of jumpy about or nervous about transcendental, that which is above, the, 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 uh, the lofty things. It is. I mean, it, it got sort of a bit of a bad rap in the 60s with transcendental meditation. Some right. <laughs> might, listeners might be a bit cautious of and the Hare Krishnas and things. Um, I mean, they're adopting this word, obviously, from a philosophical tradition. And they kind of mean right. the same thing, but it, it, I mean, you could even use that term in one broad sense for meditation. But it, it means not meaning a particular religious sect. No, it, right. it just means going above. And, and um, yes. Okay. So, so can we talk for a moment about uh, about like what these things are? Let's break them down. You know, what is truth? What is beauty? What is unity? What is goodness? What can we quantify those things? Well, we can describe. You can describe them. Uh, you know, there's there's it's it's difficult to define a transcendental. So Aristotle says that you can't really define an individual. An individual can only be described. As soon as you try to define something, it has to be like a universal, something in a, in a category. That uh, So when you look at, at being, so a being, the first thing a being has to be is one. If it's not one, then it's two things. So unity is the most immediate transcendental. It's the one that is the most obvious, sort of intuitively, that if there's, the, insofar as a thing is, it must be that unitary thing. And as soon as there's two things, then there, those two things would be one. Uh, so St. Thomas discusses this in the, in the context of God. That, so God is pure being. There's only one God. Only one God. So, uh, so that's unity, the integrity of a being. And then truth. So truth is being that is, that is perceived by the intellect. So as soon as being is perceived by a knowing right. power, by another mind, that, that is truth. And St. Thomas defines truth as adequatio rei et intellectus, which means it's an adequation or a conformity 
between the mind, the intellect, and reality. And so being, as soon as another being is aware of a being, then it's truth. So all beings are true insofar as they are being. So falsity is sort of a state of non-being. It's where the intellect intellect does not conform to reality. And therefore, you do not see the being as it is. So being, insofar as it is, is true. So if the, if, if the intellect does not see the being as it is, it's false. But then the falsity does not reside so much in the being. It's in the awareness, in the knowing power that has a false impression of the being. So being is inherently true. Okay. It just radiates truth. Okay. So when, when we say being, like, are humans part of that? Are humans... So we're we're the being. So the fact that we, the fact that we exist because we're known by other humans or by God or whatever, then it's is it is it true that we are? <laughs> what is what's true about me? What is that is is the is the fact that I exist is true or that, that it's, it, everything about you is true? Okay. Everything it is is about you is true. So you can say so. That's what truth is. Truth is being seen by an intellect okay that's just so even if i didn't know anybody in my whole life the fact that god knows yes. me so god's always that. the the kind of escape clause for catholics right so when you get into these conundra of quantum physics right. and things and people go <laughs> oh if a tree falls in the forest does it make a sound and right if you don't know something does it exist like schrodinger's equation and all these probabilistic well yeah they're fun to talk about and things but God knows everything, right? Things exist because God knows them. They, they, as soon as God knows something, it exists. Okay. Okay. So the tree does, the tree does make a noise. <laughs> so, it, it, so we it, can it lay does, that to rest. Okay. I always thought it did. St. <laughs> Thomas says, God knows everything that is, but also everything that could have been and that could yet be. Like it's an infinite knowledge. He knows every way you could have lived your life. Never mind the ways you did live your life. Or are. Right. So then is something true if it could be? Do you see what I'm saying? Like the potential, say, of having a child. I don't have a child. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not planning on having a child. But does the child, in a sense exist because it could exist because God knows that it could exist or does it need to come into existence? It has to come into, so, so the, the truth has to be phrased in, in a, in a proposition in the indicative okay. mood. That means X is Y. So if X might be Y, the only truth you can apply to that statement is that, is that X might be Y, which itself has some level of truth. Like probabilities do, or conditionals do have some level of truth, because they're, they, there's this, this at least the statement could be true, but they're not true strictly okay. speaking. So truth always has to be phrased in a propositional format. X is Y, and that's what gives it being, because conditional being is not yet being, so it can't be a transcendental. It can't really be true. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about beauty for a minute. Well, maybe we should do goodness first. Do, okay, let's, let's do goodness Goodness, because they tie together. Because people dispute beauty as a transcendental. 
And I'll talk one second because so goodness is goodness is being that is desired or seen as good or pers- by a will. So there's two intellectual powers in in intellectual beings, humans, angels, and God, and that is the intellect and the will. And so truth is being as perceived by the intellect, and goodness is being as desired by the will. Okay. Okay, and that's what so, and they always go together. Now, the goodness follows upon truth. And that's why the church always clarifies that there has to be the true good. Uh, because goodness can attract your will, but it may not be the true good. It's still a good. Okay. Uh, yeah. How do we discern that? I mean, there's many things that I think are obvious, you know, like that that are, you know, moral uh, question marks are obvious, or we turn to the church or we turn to God to discern whether something is a true good or not. But there are many things that, that, that I would say would come under the kind of the gray area. You know, we've talked, we had to do a whole episode on discernment and that was, you know, yeah. how do, how do we discern? It's a great question. It, oh, it, it ties together with the last podcast we did because yeah. um, this is why, this is why, you know, St. Thomas says in the hierarchy of the transcendentals, truth comes before goodness. It is, it is prior right. to goodness right. because it has to be the true good, which is why GP2 called his encyclical on the moral life, Veritati Splendor, the splendor of truth, and not the splendor of goodness. And you'd think, why wouldn't he call it the splendor of goodness? Because it's about the moral life. But he says the splendor of truth, because truth comes first. And that's why we're all... St. Thomas says, as Aristotle, right? they say that goodness, the will is a blind power. Like we can't help but be attracted to the good. It's in our nature. Right. So the good acts upon us. Like we we kind of are moved by the good. Whereas the intellect, we have to sort of assimilate it. There's more effort in truth in some way. Okay. Like at least in like you, the truth you has have to be to built seek. up. Yeah, you have to, you know, so you say, well, what is the true good? And the true good requires what we said last, you know, last um, podcast the sermon of the moral life and whatnot, uh, where you say, oh, is this good, good for me? And not only good for me, but good for me now, here and now, in the present context. Right. And that's the virtue of prudence, elevated and perfected by the gift of counsel, which is the immediate perfection of the conscience, which discerns, you know, judges the true good of any action that we're going to, what we're currently doing or have done. Where is our, where is the best place that we can, and again, this came up in discernment, but where's the best place that we can uh, learn how to, uh, how to access goodness, true good, truth, like how access true goodness, right? Where, what are, what are our, if this is a new idea, like where, where are we best to turn to learn how to to determine that right that's a, that's that's a perennial question <laughs> and, and so i'm going to give you two extremes okay sure. and you find the middle ground okay so the church had this whole history of what we call casuistry 
and you might have heard of casuistry. And casuistry comes from the Latin casus, which means cases. And there were big, thick moral manuals that tried to a priori discern every single moral case and whether it was good or bad. Right. Right. You know, and and it would give you this, but it was too constraining. It led to great scrupulosity. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not condemning camp. Casuistry itself is good, like in a sense. It's good to analyze moral situations, and but to get too detailed about it, and to say that this is good for everybody and this is the right thing for everybody, is was not good. It got too detailed, and then I've heard one Dominican saying this was back in the day. He said, "Now he, he's talking about hearing confessions by giving advice and confessional, but it applies also to living a moral life. Is all you need to do is read the Summa and read good novels." Right. <laughs> right. So the Summa gives you the principles and the novels give you sort of the application the cases without yeah. you living through them. And you can go, oh, right. you know, but the end end of the day, what the church says is you have to avoid intrinsic evil. Mm-hmm. That's just a, 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 so anything intrinsically evil you have to avoid. You can never do evil. The good may come of it. Right. And then besides that, the world is your oyster and you just pray discern with your reason and and a good spiritual director advisor friends and you discern a bit now you can discern small things big things that's the discernment thing but it does apply back to the transcendentals because it is truth and goodness because you want the good that's good for you because the, the, the happiness is nothing else but the fulfillment of your will right and what fulfills your will is the true good now, ultimately, your will can only be fulfilled by God. At the end of the day, that's why our hearts are restless for the rest in thee. But to reach God, we have to choose the true goods in this life that don't bend our will away from God. Right. Okay, so not not all of my listeners would be Catholic, and not all of them would, would be Catholics who would sure. have necessarily grown up with, with uh, good formation. And I would say mm-hmm. that the vast majority, um, speaking on your behalf, dear listeners, <laughs> would be people really seeking uh, to do good, right? So where would, where would we look for, okay, you know, again, or, or do we have a cases that say these are the things that are intrinsically evil? These are the things you need to avoid. So in terms of a, a starting at a very basic point of like, okay, if we if what we need to do is is avoid anything that's intrinsically evil, where do we find out what that is? The, the, well, the Ten Commandments. So that's why God gave the commandments. That they're they're like the minimum. They're they're like the basic diet plan for the moral life. They're like don't eat garbage. Yeah, in case people are wondering, the Catechism very clearly goes over the Ten Commandments about, yes. you know, how we, what what each of them means in a much broader, you know, uh, context, right? So how how we can understand these and uh, various writings on them and whatnot, which is, I think, I think it's really helpful to understand. It is. And it's, so there's a negative level of commandments of what not to do, but then the flip side is the virtue. They also tell us right. the virtuous thing, like honor your father and mother. So... Thou shalt not commit adultery means live a chaste life, like fidelity in marriage and, um, you know, chastity through life and and treating the opposite sex with dignity, respect, mm-hmm. not using people as objects. And now yeah. we can find that out the hard way 
or the easy way and learning that we can, you know, accepting it with a from God and through our right. reason, through our reason. Yeah. It's not just purely; it's, it's basically the law written in our hearts that we deep down we're aware of it. And I think everybody shares some degree of the natural law. You know, even if there's something. You know, Hmm. I agree. I mean, I, as a, you know, growing up as a non-Christian, I think there was certain things that were written on my heart that, that I, it was easier to ignore because I didn't have any, uh, any authority telling me that these things were wrong. It just, I just felt like they were wrong, but it's, e- as you get older and get, you know, more temptations come your way, it's easier to ignore them when there's your parents or a higher authority or your pastor or whatever aren't saying, you know, these behaviors are wrong. Right. Well, that's yes, and then the goodness attracts us because there's lots of goods that are still true, but they may be true in a different context. Like sex is a very great good; mm-hmm. it's one of the most attractive things, but used outside of the proper context, it's not a true good. It's still a good, but it doesn't correspond to who we really are. Used, misused, right. and therefore, and the same thing with anything else, like with food or with money or with or with friendships. To misuse them, they're still all good things. And as the poet Juvenal even said, Pagan, he said, corruptio optimi pessima. The corruption of the best is the worst. Mm. The better something is, the more it can be turned and turned against yeah. us. Which is why the, the transcendentals are so foundational in the moral life. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the best books I ever read years and years ago when I first became Catholic, I read Love and Responsibility. And um it was a it was a very formative book for me. Um, that's John Paul II wrote that before he was Pope. Is that correct? Yeah, he wrote it as Archbishop of Krakow for his all the couples he was. And it's an exceptional book. I mean, it's really intended for marriage, but it it really resonates on every level of um, of relationship. And and the dignity of the human person. It's a very it's a very formative book. So if yeah. it's something again, if some people are looking for ways that they can uh, heighten their understanding of goodness, of evil, uh, of uh, dignity, I think that's one of the best books I've ever read. Yep, I would say that his his contribution to that was profound in the extreme. Yes, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, should we? Should we put our toe in the water about beauty? <laughs> beauty. Beauty. Beauty is, is yes, I'll begin with a quote. So I just I just wrote to someone today, as a matter of fact, just out of the she sent me uh the day a picture of a beautiful church in New York City, a friend of mine, that she had found just she just moved into the new apartment and serendipitously found this church that was gloriously beautiful. It looks like something transported from Rome into the middle of New York and you find these little treasures and you uh, saw this picture of it and I quoted to her Dostoevsky that beauty will save the world. So beauty is a difficult thing to define again. And in two places in the Summa, St. Thomas talks about beauty and he says that in one part, near the beginning, in both places in the section on God, all beauty comes from God. He says, beauty is quod visum placet, which means that which pleases upon being perceived, which is sort of taken into the popular culture right. as beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. Uh, but later on in the Summa, a few questions later, 
he gives objective criteria to beauty. In, in question 16, sorry, question 39, 39, beginning of the Sumer, and he says that beauty has three criteria for the beautiful thing. First is integrity. It has to have all the parts requisite for it. And then second is proportion. Mm-hmm. All those parts have to fit together harmoniously. And the third is what he calls sometimes clarity or honestas. Mm-hmm. And it means the thing shines right. with what it's meant to be. And so the beauty of a man is different from the beauty of a woman. The beauty of a butter knife is different than the beauty of a carving knife. The beauty of uh, a Victorian home is different than the beauty of a Greek temple. And so each thing has to shine forth with its own particular form. Right. Or entity. You know, um, just a thought on that. Do you, are you familiar with David Clayton? No. He wrote a book on beauty. He's a uh, Catholic fellow. Um, He's an artist and an art teacher. Um, And he wrote a book on beauty. And I won't try and remember the name of it because I'll I'll forget it, but I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, And we were chatting with him and he says, um, he said to some degree, beauty is is defined sort of a, uh, it's almost crowdsourced in a sense, because when generations keep coming back to, to look at a thing. And, you know, we're talking objects, paintings, sculpture, you know, uh, we, we keep coming back and keep recognizing the beauty in them because there is, uh, you know, a kind of a transcendent beauty about them. So it's not just for this time and place, but we keep coming back to the beauty inherent in the object, say, say a, um, a painting by one of the great masters or something like that. It's kind of withstands the test of time, same as beautiful literature, like it sort of withstands the test of time. It's not just for this time and place, place, uh, but that, that we, we can recognize something's beautiful, but then we can also have somebody say, you know, some, a uh, splash of red paint on a white canvas and somebody come along and say, you know, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But it, if you crowdsourced opinions <laughs> on the, you know, red splotch, you wouldn't get that, right? You would, you would, you have to kind of get a cultural feedback over a period of generations sometimes to, to, um, to recognize not to, I mean, there's inherent beauty, but, but to recognize that these are the qualities of beauty. I'm not saying this very well, but do you know what I'm saying? Well, no, like no. A, that, that, that beauty calls us, right? True beauty kind of calls us and, and it's, it transcends time or place or culture, right? That's well, I mean, yes, it's indeed because it's an extended use of the term transcendental, which is, you know, what transcends the other, categories but it also transcends as you said the immediate moment mm-hmm. and the zeitgeist of the age and the true beauty will be will endure because it, you know a thing is beautiful insofar as it approaches the perfection of being and the perfection so when a thing is all that is meant to be it by definition is beautiful and so insofar as a thing decreases in its being it's less beautiful. And so we say, well, beauty is, is obviously a bit of a spectrum. There's things that are more beautiful, less beautiful. And there's there's things that are beautiful in many different ways. So there's not just a unitary concept of beauty. It's a, it's, 
It's a complex thing, which is why some people don't include it as a transcendental, partly because it is part subjective, quote right. and budget, but partly also because it's it's complicated, right? And it has this, well, there'll be no end of the books written about beauty and the arguments and the debates about what is beautiful, what isn't beautiful. And, uh, so is there, is, there a, is there a science of beauty? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and uh, some people find, for example, of course, we know there's beauty in nature, exquisite beauty in nature, there's exquisite beauty in the art world. Some people would far prefer the beauty of nature uh, some people would far prefer the beauty of architecture or of art, you know, and and I think that's just part of our uniqueness, right? But I think it's good still to expose ourselves and our children to uh, to beauty in its many, many forms, right? Right. I gave a talk a couple years ago on beauty at a Vortia Institute in the summer, and the, the, the relation between the beauty of nature and the beauty of art, beauty of art true art, is very deep mm-hmm. that what makes nature beautiful is the same thing that makes art beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they've done analyses on these, right? With the Fibonacci series, the golden ratio of the Greeks and nature naturally, almost everything in nature from rose petals to insects, to mountains, to they follow these deep, almost mathematical proportions. Yeah. And then the Greeks imitated that in their in their architecture and their art that's endured through time and then that was adopted by the renaissance painters all the way through and that deep beauty is just inherently pleasing to human beings and it goes into yeah. works of music so the yes. greatest music, oh this is what david clayton says he, yes. he goes into all of that like why the proportion yes. is so pleasing to the human brain the human eye right yeah, like I, I was looking back at one, one of my students is doing her science paper on on the science of beauty. Now we're talking about this. And, cool. and so I, I found this old article I'd written on beauty. And I quoted in the article that little conversation from the Amadeus movie with, with Mozart. Remember about Mozart? Came out years ago. Right. Yeah. I, I, I saw the movie years ago. I don't really remember it. Well, well. yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good movie, but and it's flawed in some ways. But. So there's a scene where the emperor looks at one of Mozart's compositions and said, there's too many notes. And Mozart says, there's just as many notes as it needs, your highness. Right. So Mozart, master of beauty, and he says, so this amateur is looking at it and saying, oh, it's all crowded with notes. But Mozart didn't put in too many notes. Neither right. I mean, some of the other composers do. But uh, so the masters of beauty. As you say, it transcends space and time. Like we're still listening to the great masters, still looking at the great artists, and they will they will continue. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, we can have more modern, um, you know, musicians, artists, sculptors uh, learn from uh, what has gone before them. You know that uh, there seems to be that a renewal is going on, right? We do, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is. And I think that the, the great music being produced now, the great art, is going to, no, it's not going to be slavish copies. Mm-hmm. You take the, that's why beauty is a deep thing. And it has to be instantiated in a very concrete, unique way. But the deep principles, I think, maintain, just like anything else, where the deep principles of morality underlie any life, any great life. But every life is lived 
in a unique way. The saints are more unique than anybody else. Like they're all very unique saints. They live their lives fully. Wow. Okay. So, so I wanted to kind of get into, uh, well, something you said a little while ago. I just want to bring this up because I think it's uh, be interesting for my readers when you're talking about how, um, uh, that we have to consider things kind of uniquely. It's not a, it's not a simple thing to say, uh, you know, this is what you do. This is how you live a good life. You, you know, you can't go to these, this giant book um, and it will tell you how to, you know, how to do each, uh, you know, the moral, uh, the moral high ground or low ground that you happen to be on by whatever act or whatever thing you do, because we're all so, so utterly different. And it's the same, like with disciplining children, you know, you can't, there's no, there's it's no, you can't be formulaic. You cannot be formulaic about it. And so if you try to be formulaic about, well, this behavior means this thing happens, or, uh, you know, if your child does this, then you just simply respond with this. We're complicated, right? And so yes. it makes sense to me, you know, every parent knows how complicated it is to raise a child. You don't even know amongst your own kids. You don't necessarily do the same thing with each child. It's very personality dependent and character dependent. Um, but uh, so this is kind of in a sense, discovering how, how to live a, a truly good life is is our own sort of disciplinary measure, our own disciplinary framework that we're uh, trying to find our way. What is it we do here, right? And that's there's no simple answer. There's no book, right? There's no well. I mean, there's some books for the deep principles, like the Catechism in the Bible. Yeah, there's no, but there's yes. no book. That's why you, you have to you have to write the book. Like your life is is a book. It's your, it's your story. Yeah. That's why. That's why. Uh, one of the great virtues is courage. Now, it doesn't mean like battlefield courage, or whatever. It means just the courage to do something, like to write a word on a page, and just to put yourself out there into the world and say, "This is what I'm going to do." And for some people, it's just the courage to get up in the morning. They're struggling from depression or whatever, right? You know, or to wipe that nose one more time. That's it. I mean, some people, yes. All the way to the courage to get married, or yeah, there's so that's what we're, we're writing, and that's what we're living, and that's right. And every so, from the book of Sirach says that man, God left man in the hand of his own counsel, and that mm-hmm. God left us free. Now, that freedom is, is a great gift, and that gift can be used for good or for ill, and uh, but it's our gift to use which is why anybody who's going to create something wants to create something that is true, good, and uh, beautiful. And is not somebody else's version of true, good, or beautiful. <laughs> you no. know, because that will be that will be different. I, I can't live uh, a life that was intended for someone else. And so we can never judge. We are often, I think one of the, one of the biggest things that causes despair amongst human beings is, is comparison, right? And so it's just so yeah. detrimental to the to becoming who God intends you to be and to do the things that you want to do if you start comparing yourself to others. And I think it is part of the human condition, but it's really detrimental. Mm -hmm. Yes, St. Thomas will go through this in class, the the sin of envy. Mm -hmm. And and that's what envy really is. is St. Thomas says it's one of the most debilitating sins. It's like sorrow at the good of Mm -hmm. another. 
where somebody is a good that you don't have and you think, oh, I, I should have that good or should have had that good. And it causes us sorrow that turns into anger and resentment and even hatred. And St. Thomas says you have to turn that, which is kind of in some ways a natural reaction to someone else's goodness, into something like humility that I don't have, or zeal. If you can achieve that good, then go get it. Like, so someone plays an instrument better than I do, I say, wow, that's really good. It makes good practice. That's, that's discipline. I, I'm going to try to be as good as that person or at least go towards that goodness. Uh, but if they have a goodness I can never get, I praise God for it. I say, hmm, you know, the old can be envious of the mm-hmm. young. The married of the unmarried, unmarried of the married, the, this, that, and other thing, somebody living someplace, it's just envious. Yeah. As you said, God has a story for each mm-hmm. one of us. And that, that has to be lived. It's like, are you, some of us are hobbits, some of us are dwarves, some of us are humans, some of us are all sorts of things, right? And we got to live our life and it's going to be a happy life if you live it well. Have you heard the expression, paddle your own boat? Well, I haven't heard it, but I've lived, <laughs> I mean, it just, my kayak, I love to paddle. Yeah. You've lived it. Okay. Well, it's interesting because I think I saw it like on a, t-shirt or a poster or something like that paddle your own boat and I thought you know that is a really great phrase because not only does it mean just just focus on what you're doing right focus on what you're doing it also means don't focus on what the other guys don't doing (laughs) just just paddle your own boat you know because there's good that will come from paddling your own boat there's also good that will come from not worrying about the other guy's boat right (laughs) I don't know just well yeah like it we can even we can even quote guys that don't so Voltaire, which we didn't have no love for the Catholic Church, but he ends off his little meditation Candide and he says, Tend your garden. Now he doesn't yeah. mean it in full Catholic sense, or whatever. Yeah. But there's a great truth to that. Tend your garden. It's just there it is. God's given you your house, your garden, whatever it might be. And all he wants from you is that you tend your garden. And don't worry about somebody else's garden. It's just that's their garden. And uh, you make your garden. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Such a human lesson to learn over and over and over and over again. (laughs) It's unbelievable. I know. And you always look at the window and you think, but but you make it as as beautiful as you can. Life's about that beauty. And you see, if you make things beautiful, it's much more attractive. Like the truth can be presented in a way that's very unattractive. It's still true. So if I go to teach class and it's really boring and I'm like, oh, I'm just reading off the page. It's true, maybe what I'm saying, but it's not very attractive. You've got to make it right. beautiful. Now, beautiful doesn't necessarily mean you know, physical beauty. Yeah, it eloquence, just beauty absolutely. Expression, the way that we speak. Yeah, and just being interacting with people, looking them in the eye, mm-hmm. making them feel wanted or appreciated. And that that's leads them to think, oh, this is, this is, uh, yeah. So I want to talk for a minute about, um, the transcendentals and conversion, because I had, I don't know when, where I read this, but something along the lines of that people often have one, a more primary path through the transcendentals that leads to their conversion. So, so maybe, 
uh, and all of those things become important over time. But and in a sense, you could probably compare it like some people have a very much an intellectual conversion. Some people have a very heart conversion. Right. I see. Would you yes. say there's some truth to that, that that yes. conversion mm-hmm. can vary according to an attractiveness to to one or another of these transcendentals? Oh, very much. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to Dostoevsky's thing about beauty saving the world. But I think what he meant by that is, no, I don't, it's in the novel, right? But it's, the, uh, it's not a philosophical you know, treatise or anything. But you're right. I think that's very true. Like, if you take someone like Cardinal Newman, he was almost brought into the church against his will. You know, he started to, to, he wanted, when he set out, he was an Anglican curate to prove the truth of Anglicanism by delving into history. But the more he delved into history, the more he saw that all of it was, was Catholic. <laughs> and that's why his, his, his phrase is like, to delve or to, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Because you go back further back and you, you see how Catholic it was from the very beginning. So his was just like, I, 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 I have to become Catholic. It just is overwhelming. Whereas someone like St. Augustine, right. he knew all the arguments. He could recite them backwards and forwards. He was one of the greatest minds of all history. For him, it was beauty. It was just, it was the beauty of God. So his method, his mode of conversion was what someone's called interiorism, mm-hmm. where he just reflected upon God in his mind. His famous phrase was, oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. How could I have neglected you, you know, for so all these years? And the beauty of God just drew him. To, into the into the church, and that was that was why you know even when he first heard hymns being sung like with Saint Ambrose, and uh, it, it just uh, he burst into tears, which right. was, was overwhelming in his beauty. So those are two kind of extremes, and everybody falls sort of in between. Where it could be goodness, it could be someone meets a beautiful spouse, and uh, this you know, they're drawn into the the, the fullness of truth through the goodness, the, even the beauty, or whatever it might be of their spouse or their good life. And we see many history of the saints, married saints who married rough men, let's say, who were, mm-hmm. I mean, even Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. And Patricius was not a, what you'd say, a paragon of virtue, to pull it mildly, but he was eventually brought in the long way around, right, through the goodness of Monica. Yeah, and um, so there's many paths to conversion whatever that conversion means for each person how they're how they're brought there but god's drawing us all yeah would unity have a place in that in terms of of uh of drawing people into conversion well it could i mean so the first thing that comes to mind with unity is is the church like the the unity of the church like if so unity would apply to things like is as the, the oneness of, of the mystical body of Christ, of the church, mm-hmm. the stability, and the the fact that there is one place, like the integrality of it all. And people are drawn into that notion of it just being so solid, mm-hmm. and so enduring through space and time, to so the image of the ark or the, and just this thing you can grab onto in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if this would be a, a way unity would play in. It just popped into my brain. We have friends who 
years ago, the husband was raised really solidly Catholic. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was, he was raised in South America and he, you know, grew up in this beautiful Catholic home and village. And, and he eventually, he left the faith. He, you know, traveled and, you know, lived in various countries around the world and eventually lost his faith and became, you know, a, a sort of self-described, uh, materialist, right? And then, and then he met his wife who, who wasn't really anything at the time, but she was questioning. She was wondering sort of what, you know, what was life all about? You know, they met and they were dating and planning to marry. And he said, she said, well, you know, if there, if there's nothing, if there's nothing else, if there's no God, how do you explain that you love me? How do you explain love? How can, mm -hmm. how can you explain love? And I wonder if that also is, would be a way. Uh, oh, so eventually he came back into the church and, you know, was, mm. was converted mm -hmm. because of her simple question, you know, how can you explain love? If there's nothing, it's, if it's all just, you know, materialist, materialistic, if it's all, it's of a material world, then there's, there's no uh, afterlife. There's no whatever, how, wh where, where does love fit into this? It doesn't really fit right? There's usefulness and there's uh, enjoyment and, you know, various other things, but there's not the actual unity of, of, you know, what we would call true love. <laughs> would that, could that be a version of unity affecting conversion? Well, it could. I mean, well, I mean, insofar as, as one of the hallmarks of marriage mm -hmm. is the two becoming one. Mm -hmm. And so, it, the, the, and the only way that two can become one is at the level of the will. Right. Because everything else has comes and goes. The passions, the desire, the, even the utility. Like if someone becomes paralyzed or sick and you think, well, they're not useful to me anymore. They're not beautiful. They're not, and they're not, not good to me. Right. Quote unquote. But yet, yet the, the depth of that, the bond mm -hmm. that makes you one. And so unity certainly is is a draw. Yes, it's it's uh, it's what makes human beings who they are, right? In terms of we are we are one, but then we can join ourselves to others, either in friendship or the deeper level in in marriage. And that unity of the of the bond. So. I, I want to sort of address for a couple of minutes if kind of edu educating to increase our understanding of beauty. Okay. So, you know, most of my listeners would be homeschooling parents. Uh, what are some simple mm -hmm. ways that they can increase the depth of understanding for themselves and their family so that they're opening the door wider to, to be surrounded by or imbued with the transcendentals? Well, it's a good question. I mean, the, the ironic answer to that is by learning about the transcendentals themselves. Well, there are, there are books galore out there. I mean, at the, at, for an adult, whatever, if you want to, there's the, Jack Maritain, the great philosopher, wrote a book called Art and Scholasticism. And it's, and it's, a, it's a very good introduction to the history of, of, of beauty, according to the scholastic tradition. Uh, okay. So that's one way for the parents to, and then uh, there's, there's other versions of this for, for younger people, 
all over the place. Like homeschooling programs also exist. Places that have been they have adopted it for younger minds. But I think the best way. So and the other way to learn about beauty is just to immerse oneself in it. Mm-hmm. But the way is that you. It's better to appreciate it if you know about it beforehand. You get more out of it. Uh, where you can you can learn. The more you know about, let's say, a Bach partita or whatever, the more you can say you can appreciate wh- how how structured it is, how beautiful it is. We did a lot of art appreciation yeah. when my kids were young because I I just wanted to know more about art, and that's something just a, a thought for parents too that. You know, you you don't have to, if you have five little kids, you know, and you can't imagine reading a book, you know, on art called art and scholasticism at this moment in your life, it's okay. Because you can do that as your kids get a little older, you can read it with them, right? Yes. We did a lot of art appreciation. And, and it was one of those things that I, I know that to be true, because the more I learned about painting techniques and color and different artists lives, even all of those things that started to develop in me a, a much, much deeper appreciation of art. And I think um, it's, it would be like, you know, you see a horse and okay, you, you see a horse running around there, but if you start learning about a horse and reading about a horse, suddenly then you, you're appreciating so much more the, the way their legs work and what kind of gates they have. And the fact that they have a, uh, this particular color or they're shedding their coat or they're, you know, and it's just by reading or by immersing yourself in it in some way that your appreciation for that particular animal, you can't help but grow in your appreciation for the beauty of that animal by just knowing more about it. And I think the same is for, you know, uh, for art and music for sure. Right. And there are some very good programs. I'll try and pop some in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like even even scientific principles, yeah. like the cosmos, yeah. the atoms, the, the animals galore, and even the structure of them, the butterfly wings, mm-hmm. and the flight of the hawk, and the fish in the sea. There's there's no end to it of 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 the beauty. Now that said, I would save some artistic great things just to be surprised by. Them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's good not to read about. You know, that's why there's an old saying that you should save. You should save one Shakespeare. Uh, tragedy for middle age. Okay, <laughs> right? which one? Just to, just to, well, I don't know. And pick one, and you pick it based because you're only going to really get it when you're middle aged. So right. you read them all when you're little in high school, and you think you just analyze them to death, and you think, oh, you get a newer. But if you just walk in, my brother went to see. It was a number of years ago, but he was already approaching middle age, and he said uh, he went to see King Lear. He said, "I have never seen anything like it. It was unbelievable. He was blown away." And so I think, yeah, that's that's and even some music or art or whatever. I just save a painting just to go and just be surprised. Yeah, surprised by beauty, because we can tend to over intellectualize it a little bit, and the same with the moral life and everything, and over analyze things. Yeah, that so the, the you have to be balanced, right? The truth, the goodness, beauty, and you don't want to think that it's all about the mind, but it's not also all about the will or the, whatever the passions. It's they're harmonious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, this is a quote from the catechism that I came across that I thought was really beautiful. And I thought maybe we could end off just by, if you could just comment on it, that would be great. Um, The Catechism Catholic Church in Numbers 41, 40 and 41 explains, since our knowledge of God is limited, our language about him is equally so. We can name God only by taking creatures as our starting point and in accordance with our limited human ways of knowing and thinking. 
All creatures bear a certain resemblance to God, most especially man, created in the image and likeness of God. The manifold perfections of creatures, their truth, their goodness, their beauty, all reflect the infinite, infinite perfection of God. Consequently, we can name God by taking his creatures, perfections, as our starting point. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Yeah, that's drawn from St. Thomas's beginning of the Summa. And it says that we, so, yeah. we, we can know about God by what he calls two ways. One is what he calls the way of analogy, the via analogia. Right. And so analogy in Greek literally means a proportion. And it means we compare one thing with another thing. And the way analogy works is that we take the thing that we know more and we compare that to something that is more real, but we can know less. So a, a good idea of analogy is a map. Like you see a map of the Rockies or of Florence, right? And it's like this little grid. And you can know that. You can look at it and go, but once, obviously the purpose of the map is to go to Florence or the Rockies. And mm-hmm. you, you can't really compare the map to Florence or the Rockies, but it gives you a good guide. And it allows you to know and to appreciate it and to enter into it. And that's kind of an, anal- an analogy of how we approach God, mm-hmm. that the created world is a window into God, a picture, an analogy. And St. Thomas says it's a proportion because, deepest level, every created thing is like its creator. So it's basically Sherlock Holmes, right? He can solve every crime because no matter how much the criminal tries to hide his fingerprints, whatever, on the crime, he always leaves his personality on the crime. So he's mm-hmm. work backwards. And so in an art, God's not a criminal, of course, but he is the the creator of creating of the whole universe. So everything points back to God in a way, and some more than others. So the more it's like the creator, the more it symbolizes that's why the most perfect analogy we have of God are other humans who are created in God's very image. But then all, yeah, no, all creatures are created distantly in his image. Like in, it's, his. It's, it's just, I find it an amazing thing. Like we, we are both sort of infused with God. And so the truth, beauty, goodness of God, and we're also reflecting you know, kind of a dim reflection of who God is uh, in those things. And that it's like, um, oh, I don't know, it's like a dance or something. <laughs> I don't know. That, that, that there's this sort of um, this interplay going on that it, it just sort of took me, this quote just sort of took me a surprise. Like, okay, yeah, we, we, we see, we know that God is truth, goodness, beauty, unity, the transcendentals, we, but we are as well. We are a reflection of him and we are also drawn into him further by, uh, by, because we're drawn to these things, right? Yes. Yeah. They're they the pathway to God. So the most, so we see all the accidents of, of creation mm-hmm. and we integrate them and we, we, by our minds, transcend all those colors and shapes and, and those, those, that transcending leads us to the transcendentals, which are really ways of looking at God right. and approaching God. Right. 
Wow, it's it's an amazing topic. Yeah, I can't imagine it's something you could talk for hours about. Oh yeah, you could go into. I'm just start applying it to things and start showing yeah. artworks, and it just would never end. That's yeah. why it's a lifelong journey. There's no yes. end to beauty. It's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Because well, you are is... welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a delightful. Mine kind of mind blowing. So God bless you and have a wonderful night. Thank you. Blessed. Take care, everybody. Nice.